0: you'll go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 9 this morning, Uh, we're going to continue in the book of Joshua. Uh, Get there, hold on. We've been walking through, uh, looking at the people of Israel going into the land of Canaan and conquering the land that God had promised to give to them. Um, And then last week, where we finished up in chapter 8, is they had just, uh, by faith... Uh, accomplished another victory over a second place. So after Jericho, they went to a, a place called Ai, and they were they were soundly defeated because they hadn't obeyed the fullness of God's word. Uh, they dealt with their sin, and God restored them, so they went back and, and fought a second time in the same place, experienced victory. And then in in light of what Moses had commanded them, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 27, they renewed the covenant with the Lord, Uh, in the land of promise. And so what that meant is that they read all of the law and they 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 had half the people standing in front of one mountain and half of the people standing in front of another mountain kind of at the base of this uh at this in this valley and and they recounted uh all of the thing, the ways that God would bless them if they're obedient and all of the ways that they would experience God's hand against them if they're disobedient right and the people say yeah whatever is written in there that is that is true of us we embrace it we were walking in covenant relationship with the lord uh and so chapter 9 uh, is continuing this picture of the people of Israel walking into, uh, taking possession of the land of Canaan. But chapter nine is, 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 has a different flair to it because what we would expect and what the first couple of verses are going to set up for us is we would expect just more battling, more warfare, and more conquering. And chapter nine is kind of this strange curveball that comes in in an unexpected way. Uh, so we're going to read all of chapter 9, uh, chapter nine verses 1 through 27. You can follow along on the screen if you want, or if you have a copy of God's Word, you can follow along there. Uh, but we'll read it, and then we'll walk through and look at uh, what it meant then, what it means now, and how we should walk uh, in faith-filled obedience in light of what God's Word says. So starting in Joshua chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Says, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, They heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephira, Baroth, and Kiriath-Jerom. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. And Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, "Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of water and drawers of water, for, or cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God." They answered Joshua, "Because it was told to your servants for a certainty." that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So in verses 1 and 2, so we're introduced, right? The tone and the tenor for the next few chapters is being laid out. uh, That as Israel has experienced overwhelming victory in two major cities, the rest of the kings hear about it and they decide... We're going to come together to fight Israel. And, and the implication of that, when it says that they came together as one, would be that before this, they were not united in purpose or in plan. Like their, their whole purpose in coming together is, oh no, Israel is coming. I don't, you know, we can understand that if, if somebody started to invade California. We may not love California. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm not going there. We might come together for that. Uh, but they're coming together, and, and what we're, we're going to deal with with these other kings in the weeks to come, but just a quick observation before we move on to verse 3 is that, uh, and this is true not just in Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, but it's true throughout Scripture from beginning to end, and that is this observation opposition to faithfulness in Christ is normal for the follower of Jesus. Opposition to faithfulness in Christ is normal. And somehow, and the reason why I said we need to stop there and just take a moment to say that is how often do we view opposition to faithfulness in Christ as normal? And how often do we go, that's not normal? It's a normal thing. Like, if we are, as the people of God, if we are in our minds set to be faithful to the Lord and do what He says, it will naturally put us in places of conflict with a world that does not see faithfulness to Jesus or to the Lord as something that is a value. In fact, when our values that are given to us, not because of, like, not because we're a Baptist church or because of any other reason, but because we believe God's Word is God's Word and He says what He says and we ought to do it, it will naturally put us in places of conflict with people who do not agree that it is God's word and it is and we're to do what it says. Right? Like if we just adopt a view of the world that God says is normal through his word, we are already at odds with the world around us. Now, that doesn't mean, hear me really quickly on this, that does not mean that you have license to be a jerk about it. What it simply means is reframe your expectations, Opposition to faithfulness in Jesus is normal. It was normal all throughout the New Testament, which is why so much of the New Testament is built around this idea of enduring suffering well and sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. Like, If it was something abnormal, the disciples would have written in their letters, Paul and Peter would have said, hey, stop being a knucklehead, it's drawing trouble to you. Instead, they say, your faith in Jesus is worth it, even though you're suffering for it. And I'm not going to go too much farther because we're going to deal with that as we as we look into chapter ten and eleven in the next couple weeks. But the, they come out in opposition, going, well, "We're going to stop this invasion of Israel into our land." And what we would expect then in verse three, if we were just reading this for the first time, what we would expect is. A major battle to ensue right after that, right? There's these kings that they come together, they have one purpose, we're standing against Israel and against Joshua, and boom, this is where the battle takes place. Instead, it pivots in Joshua chapter 9, verse 3, to a different people who adopt a different strategy. And so we're introduced to the, for the first time to the people of Gibeon, which is before this is not a place that we've heard about in Scripture. Um, and if you just jump forward to chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, and again, we'll touch on this next week, but it gives you just a little bit of, of reference for who they are. Um, so it says, As soon as Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, Doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and his king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, and notice this, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. Right? So, so that's who Gibeon is. Like All of their dudes are trained for battle. They're great warriors. It's a huge city. It's bigger than the one that Israel just captured. And so what you would expect if we were reading this in reverse is these guys who are great warriors and a huge city and, and similar to, in size to the one that had routed Israel one time, they say, I think we have a puncher's chance at this. Let's go fight. But instead, it says, when they heard what Joshua had done to these two other cities, it says they, on their part, acted with cunning and and the phrasing of that is it's it's kind of setting the the actions of Gibeon against the other kings but also saying remember how Joshua and the people of Israel had laid an ambush and set a trap for the people of Ai it's like and now Gibeon is laying their own trap by their own work of cunning against the people of Israel and so their strategy is 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 weird if we were to look at it right their strategy is to take their their active cunning is to take all their worn out junk right yard sale material stuff you don't want anymore but somebody else finds valuable uh, they bring out the old, worn-out sacks and lay those on their donkeys for saddles. They get their worst and most worn-out sandals that have been patched together 12 times, and they put those on. They get their old, worn-out work clothes, and they put those on. And they get the wineskins that are really old that they've been, like, patched together a couple times, and they take those. And they so they get all of their, like, you were thinking, okay, if you were going to go make peace with somebody, how would you show up dressed, would you be wearing your painting clothes? Like an old pair of flip-flops that are like have a blown out bottom. You make sure you take your car that doesn't have any hubcaps. And it's like rusted out through the side. Like so they show up looking just pitiful. And the reason like and the and the reason for this is the city that they're from is about Eight, somewhere between eight and twenty five miles away from from the two cities that were just captured, so they 're pretty close, and so they 're like and, and so their act of cunning right is verse six to say when they get there with all their worn out stuff to say we 've come from a really far way away, but we came like on this mission to make peace with you, so quick, make peace with us right and, and there 's an urgency involved in it to say we 've come from a distant country, so now Make a covenant with us. Make peace now, quickly. Let's do this thing. Because, like, we've been traveling so long, we're just wore out. We want to get this done. We want to go home. And you see that there's, like, this, there's this thing in verse 7 that kind of pings on the radar for the Israelites. They're right? like, wait a minute. How do we know, like, we're new in town. How do we know you're not our neighbor and it also identifies them in verse 7. It says that they're Hivites. So they're not just residents of Gibeon, but like they're from this people group that's called the Hivites, which if you go back uh, into Deuteronomy chapter 7, just to see what God is saying about these people before Israel ever goes into the land. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, right now we're at word salad, right? Like, that's a lot of words. But then notice this, the Hivites, ding, 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 we have a winner. And the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and notice this, they're bigger and stronger than Israel is. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, notice the command, then you must Devote them to complete destruction. We've talked about this the last few weeks, about the difficulty that's in Joshua of of this command, but how it's tied to the worship and the keeping of God's name holy, and how God will hold his own people to the same account of worship. But he says, but notice this at the the second part of verse 2. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. So, before the people of Gibeon ever get there, Israel has some marching orders of how to interact with them once they find them. They are a people similar to Jericho and I, and similar to these other kings that are gathering together. They are a people that God has promised for one, that He will drive them away in, in the presence of the Israelites. but number two, they are people who are in, like israel's not to make a covenant with. Now, what we've talked a lot about, and and just to retouch it really briefly, we've talked about the difference of the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God, and how the marching orders of the New Testament people of God is evangelism and on mission and lifting high the name of Jesus among every tribe, tongue, nation, language. The Old Testament mission of God is the tangible, visible presence of God manifested through a place, through a state, through a people, right? And, and, And there's a difference that's involved in this. But make notice that the people of Israel, in verse 7, they're asking a question. But if you're, if you're one of these people, we, we can't do that. How do we know you're not them? And they, and they say to Joshua, We're your servants. And Joshua doubles down in verse 8, he says, But who are you? And where have you come from? Like the people of Israel are wrestling through this. Like something doesn't quite seem right, but like, who are you? Like, we just crossed the river, right? God brought us miraculously across the Jordan River, and all the people we have encountered so far are the ones that God says devote to destruction. So it's kind of weird now that all of a sudden you weirdos show up and want to make a covenant. So who, who are you? And they double down, and they say, like, we're from, like, we're from far, far away. We're from Fairylandville. Like, we, we've come a super long distance, and here's the evidence, right? All that old, worn-out junk that they brought, they said, look at our stuff. Our shoes, like, we have been walking so long. Our shoes are worn out. We've been riding for so long that, like, our, the, 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 the thing, the sacks that we've thrown on our donkeys, they're worn out. When we left, these wineskins were brand new. And look at this, we patched them so many times. Our bread, like it's moldy and crumbly and it's gross. But when we left a long, long time ago, like it was warm. It was fresh out of the oven. Like, so just like take our stuff and look at it. You can see where, that we came from a long ways away. And then it says... We heard right, and then they also say, we, we heard about what you did, what the Lord your God did in Egypt, and what He did on the other side of the Jordan, but notice what it says in verse three, when they heard what God had done in Jericho and i that 's when they went, but to Joshua they say like we we heard a long time ago like like forty one years ago, what God did to the Egyptians through you, right because forty years in the wilderness. Like, we've heard about what God did in Egypt, and then we heard about what He did to deliver you in battle on the other side of the Jordan. They completely leave out. Like, we have no idea what's been going on here in Canaan. Huh. But we do know that the Lord is with you because of what He's done way over there. And then again, the evidence is all of our worn-out junk. Believe us. And make quickly, again, make a covenant with us. So verse 14, it says... the men, probably the Israelites, took some of their provisions. You can just imagine. They grab all their worn-out stuff, and they, and they begin dialoguing with each other. Oh, that looks like a pretty old wineskin. Now, that's, that's really old, crumbly bread. Now, these sandals, really, like, they, 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 like nobody... They weren't, they weren't doing uh, what we used to do with stuff to try to get new stuff, like rubbing it on concrete and stuff like that, right? Like, this is legitimately worn out. And the scary thing, though, is they say so they took some of their provisions, but... I don't take this the wrong way, but there's a huge butt right there. But they didn't ask counsel from the Lord. So they they took all the stuff that was brought to them, they reasoned with it, they looked at it, they examined it, they had conversations, and they and they laid it all out and they, and, and, and they decided, but they never stopped and asked the Lord. So then in verse 15 it says. So, or and, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them. Right, and for for you and for me, we have the benefit, but even for the Israelites in that time, they have the benefit of Deuteronomy 7, like right in the background, right? Don't make a covenant with these people. They make a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swear an oath to them. So then... And notice that the whole time, the people of Gibeon are saying, We're your servants, we're your servants, we're your servants. Like, we're just like, we're just here because we've heard about you, we've heard about you, all this. In verse 16, it says, At the end of the three days, after they'd made the covenant with them, they found out that they were neighbors. And the, the heart of this is probably they were marching to the next place of conquest and come outside of the cities of Gibeon, getting ready for battle. And then, on the third day, when they get there, They draw near to the cities, and you can just imagine, like these jokers that had just said, hey, this is all our worn-out stuff, they come pounding out like, hey, actually, wait, you can't fight with us. We made it, like we swore a covenant three days ago. I don't know if you knew this. And you can just imagine the shock on the people of Israel, like, you what now? So are you guys just sleeping here because you're from far away and you're going home? And the people of Israel grumble against the leaders because they've made this covenant because they know they're not supposed to do it and they're in this weird situation verse 19 we've already sworn to them by the name of the Lord our God and now we can't touch them in other words if they to break this covenant they're taking the name of the Lord in vain and they're making covenants just willy nilly in the name of the Lord and then saying it doesn't matter what we said because you lied to us like, right, like 21st century ago, we call a lawyer and say, breach of contract, jerk. And they said, Pff, we took a vow that we shouldn't have taken, but now we can't touch them. We have to let them live. And you see, like in the heart of Joshua, he, he brings them close and you go, know, Why? Why did you deceive us? Why did you say we're from really far away from you when you were near? And it's kind of interesting, like the way that Joshua dialogues with him, like he, he, he's expecting transparency and negotiation, right? And they say now, they, they, they get honest, but he does say, you're going to be cursed and you're going to have this job as servants, which they had said, were your servants, were your servants, were your servants. But in verse 24, they say, because it was told to your servants for a certainty, we knew that the Lord had commanded Moses that you were to destroy us, and we feared greatly before our lives, and so we did this thing. It's the same heart, like when the, the spies first went into Jericho and they talked to Rahab, remember what she told them, the hearts of all these people have melted before you because they've heard, we have heard what God has done for you. But Rahab, she's marked by faith for taking care of them and asking them, bring me into your people. The Gibeonites have a different, like, they're fearful, but they don't necessarily want to be brought in. They just want to be alive. And so they say, whatever you think is best for us, go ahead and do that. And so Joshua turns them into cutters of wood, uh, deliverers of water for the congregation for perpetuity. All right. So that's all cool. That's Joshua chapter 9. But what do we do with that? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever navigated a situation or circumstance in life based off of what you could see, touch, rationalize, and wrap your heads around? Just with the resources you had available. And then afterwards, you went, oh, I didn't actually know everything. Have you ever done, is that just me? There's a temptation... For us, as New Testament believers in Christ, to fall back on what we can naturally understand and reason and assume that we are working with a full deck. And yet, if you go to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3... This is, uh, in Proverbs chapter 3, this is a, a verse that a lot of people use as like a life verse, right? Like a, ver- a verse that, they, that, they, 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 that, that carries a lot of importance and, and, and that we memorize and that we, that we want to be true of us. In Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 5, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What's the second part? Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. How many times do we say or have we heard, trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding? Man, I want that to be true of me. I want that to be true of you. That we're not a people that lean on our own understanding, yet we trust the Lord with all of who we are. And yet, how difficult is that in reality? And the challenge that we see brought up in Joshua chapter 9 that is true, I think, of all of God's people in every generation, especially now that, so if we just stop for a moment and think about what God has given to us in Christ to help us walk in a world that is fallen and screwed up in so many ways, right? so, So we hold. That all people bear the image of God, like they've been made in His image, they reflect parts of His character, and yet because of sin, that image is broken. Right, So like we can understand some of what love is by looking at people who demonstrate love, but it's still a broken version of love because sin has infected the world. We can understand what justice is and that God is just because we see and expect justice in the world. And we can see how it's executed rightly sometimes, but we also see how justice is screwed up in a lot of ways. Right, And we can do this for all of God's attributes. But the problem is, is that you and I, because of sin, there's a severed relationship between us and between God. But because of God's great love for us, he made a way through Jesus by taking our sin on himself and exchanging our death, our guilt, our sin, our shame for his life and his righteousness. And then not only that, but after, if we placed faith in him, trusting that he has done for us, paid for our sins in a way that we cannot do for ourselves, that when we place our faith in him, we believe, Scripture tells us, and we believe by experience that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the life of people who profess faith in Jesus. Now, the challenge that is presented to us in the New Testament, though, is that that there's a war and a tension between who we are in our brokenness and what God is doing in us through His Spirit. And the challenge for us is our default position is not naturally the things of the Spirit. Our default position is to deal with things according to who we once were. Now, and that doesn't mean that God doesn't change us and change our inclinations over time. He certainly does, and that's a process that's called sanctification. It's a really fancy way of saying that God is working in us over time and making and, and working this process in us. And yet, one of the traps that we can fall into is thinking that everything that we interact with and everything that we see, we immediately are dealing with it according to the new creation that we are in Christ. When in reality... Man, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, what is your first inclination? It is probably not to spout off psalms. If somebody cuts you off in traffic, your immediate thought is not usually, Bless them, Lord, I love them so much. When people hurt us, our natural inclination is not to do the things that God calls us to do according to his word. Our natural response is probably to do the thing that we would have done naturally in the flesh. Smack, you hurt me, I hurt you back. How much of our lives is spent in looking at crumbling bread and going, I think I know what I'm dealing with. We examine all of the stuff that's on the table and we go, I I know. I know what I need to do. And yet the same thing might be said of us as it was said of the people of Israel. We, We took and looked at the provisions, but we didn't ask counsel from the Lord. Jesus, by His Spirit, is changing us. He's giving us everything that we need for life and for godliness. And yet that's not necessarily always our default response apart from the Lord we're tempted to believe that we can know everything about the circumstance to make a right decision by just looking at the stuff in front of us we think we know everything that there is to know without asking some really important questions what does God say about this what does he say I should do how does he say I should feel about this? How does he say I should react? And the temptation and the circumstances is just like uh, when these guys come. Look at like, the urgency of it. We've come from a long way. Make a decision now. Make the covenant now. Do it now. One of the enemies to you and and me wrestling through and making decisions that are honoring to the Lord is that we believe there's an urgency that's that's there that's pushing us to rely on ourselves rather than stepping back and saying, what does God want me to do in this? And we would believe the lie that there's not time to seek the Lord in this. There's not time to step back and examine this according to what God's Word says. And yet when we rely on our own understanding... We're working at a deficit in a world that is not our friend. i have to say it in a different way. We are we're people that are desperately in need of God's wisdom and God's provision that he has made to us through his spirit to live in and navigate a life that is living itself out in a fallen world. We desperately need the presence of Jesus in our lives. We desperately need his wisdom. We desperately need his presence. Like, here's even in Christ, our every inclination is not always to do that which honors the Lord. Uh, and if we went around, we be like, yeah, uh, hey, well, last week, let me give you 12 examples of how my every inclination was not to do the thing that honored Jesus. Well, let me tell you all the ways that, that I in, in, impetuously just stepped out and, and thought I knew and didn't know. Only to find out later, oh, that's what, that's what... God's word says I should do about this. In James chapter 3, and, and we'll look at James chapter 3 and James chapter 1 just really quickly. And again, just this, this, this difference of, of what we bring to the table versus what God brings to the table Amount. I've been reflecting on it in the book of James a bunch this week. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among ye? When we are dealing with a circumstance or, or a decision in the heat of a moment, how many of us would say, yeah, I'm, I'm full of wisdom and understanding right here, right now? And he says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So There's two, two ways that our wisdom is, 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 our natural wisdom is bent against the wisdom that God provides. and It shows up in jealousy and ambition in our hearts. It says this isn't the wisdom that comes down from above. In other words, this isn't the wisdom that God gives, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's even, it's even demonic. It's set itself in, a, in opposition to the things of the Lord. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, then notice, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Like what we bring to the table, when we operate in our own strength and in our own wisdom without asking the Lord what he would have us to do, it doesn't, like, the picture is it doesn't lead. Door number two doesn't lead to the things that we want desperately to see happen. It leads to disorder. It leads to to stuff falling apart. But the temptation that we hear is, I can fix this. Like, I know enough to do this. Like, I have the tools and the resources. I can fix this. But our wisdom, apart from the Lord, when we don't consult the Word, our, our wisdom doesn't lead to fixed solutions. It leads to broken solutions. It says, but the wisdom from above, the wisdom that God gives is first pure, then it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And I get nothing about, our, what is our natural tendency? Parents, what's your natural tendency when your kids break something in the house? Is it usually always like, hey, that's cool, I'm patient. Maybe sometimes, if stuff breaks every day, you're like, oh, that again, okay. Our natural response Our flesh response is is usually not any of these things. It's not usually peaceable. It's not usually gentle. It's not usually open to hearing or open to reason. It's not usually full of showing mercy and receiving mercy. It's not usually bearing a whole bunch of good things. It's not impartial. It's not sincere. right? And and so, so the things that God is offering are completely different than the supplies you and I are usually working with. But then he says, in a harvest of righteousness. So you think about it, this is harvest time, pumpkin spice weather. All the crops are being brought in. Harvest of righteousness. Can you just, like, just imagine, like, if, if you ever seen a field that's being harvested, and they're like shooting grain into the back of a truck right off of a combine, or, or, or you're seeing uh, all the alfalfa laid out getting ready to be baled for hay, or you see like a, a full field all of a sudden empty because it's harvested. Just uh, like this, this move of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, those who operate according to the wisdom that God provides. And then if you just go back two chapters to James chapter 1, this is the incredible thing about this. Because we might go, how do I get some of that? How do I get some of that wisdom that comes from above? The wisdom that God gives, the wisdom that, that 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 leads towards a life of godliness, a life of righteousness, a life of fruitfulness, rather than a life of disorder. How do I how do I get some of that? I say, first of all, again, remember who James is writing to. He's writing to people who have experienced new life in Christ. Like, so if you don't have a faith in Jesus, like the really harsh reality of this is like. You are at a debt, like you don't have this wisdom available to you. But as soon as you place your faith in Jesus, guess what happens? He gives it to you. And notice how he gives it in verse 5. He says in chapter 1 If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. He just dumps it out lavishly to everyone who asks him without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask. Let him ask in faith. Let him ask God to provide in faith that God will hear, that God will answer, that God's way is better, that God's character is good, that God will accomplish the things that he will accomplish. Let him ask in faith without doubting. Because the one who doubts is like the wave of sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. The person who operates without the wisdom of God is being tossed around. It's a picture that's used in the book of Ephesians, talking about the need for us to grow into the maturity that's ours in Christ. Like If we don't have that, we're tossed around by every wind and every doctrine, every scheme and every work of cunning. He says, but, but that's not what God desires for you. He doesn't desire for you to just be listless at sea, being tossed around by every little thing. He desires for you to be standing firm in the strength of His might, leaning not on your own understanding like a bottle topping around in the water, but one who is established in the Lord, who is not moved, and who cannot be shaken. That's His desire for you. And it's His provision for you through His Spirit, through faith in Christ. So the big question for us, though, is is how will we choose to walk in Christ? Will we choose to go with where our eyes and our senses take us without consulting the Lord? Or will we be a people who are marked, like when, when whatever the situation or circumstance might be, are we a people who are marked by running to the wisdom of God and saying, I don't have what I need for this. You alone can provide it. And then committing in, in the seeking... Are you committed also to do what he says in obedience? Trusting that his way leads to life, righteousness, fruitfulness, peace. Or will we opt to do our own thing, determine that it won't end in destruction and disorder this time? This time I'll do better. Will we trust the one who knows, or will we trust ourselves thinking that we know? He's given provision of all of his grace for us to walk with him and to know him. It's his joy and his delight to give you the presence of his provision in Christ through his spirit. It's his joy. It's his honor to see his his people walking in his wisdom. Will we do that or will we do our own thing?